My name is Peter Beinart. I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very privileged to be joined for a conversation today with Donald McIntyre, who's a longtime correspondent and political commentator for the British newspaper The Independent and the author of the new book, Gaza, Preparing for Dawn. Uh, Donald, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. So we are recording on... um, Tuesday the 13th, and um, Gaza is in the news. There's been uh, rocket fire back and forth between Gaza and Israel. So I thought maybe we should just start with the unfortunate news of the moment. Um, How should we understand what's going on right now? Well, from uh, 5,500 miles away, it's Mm. not as easy as uh, perhaps it would if we were closer. But, I mean, what seems to have happened is that... uh, undercover operation conducted by the Israeli military at the weekend went kind of badly wrong. It was exposed. Um, There was a firefight in which a senior Israeli military officer and a Hamas commander were both killed along with six other Palestinians. And this seems to have set off the, I mean, all too habitual you know, rocket fire on the one hand, Israeli airstrikes on Gaza and the other. But what's strange about it is that it happened right in the middle of a pretty concerted and I think serious effort by the Egyptians to broker some kind of ceasefire, uh, some agreement whereby um, the some of the hostilities at the border would end and there would also be a, a lifting, however modest, of the uh, really tight blockade that Israel's operated for more than a decade on Gaza. So um, it's a little puzzling to know. I mean, I'm sure the conspiracy theories will, you know, take on wings. I'm not certain that there was, I mean, I don't think there was necessarily a deliberate attempt by the Israeli military to sabotage those ceasefire talks. But you have to ask, why did that operation take place just at that very delicate diplomatic moment. And I mean, I suspect that, you know, there were two separate tracks. I suspect it was just a long-planned military operation and nobody thought to stop it. But, you know, I don't know. I'm just now in the realms of total speculation. Right. So let me ask you this question. When you look at this conflict between um, uh, Hamas, which controls Gaza, and Israel, which... um, uh, which in a certain sense also controls Gaza um, uh, and has been locked in this cycle. Um, I want to start with you, ask you from both both sides whether you feel like they have a strategy. Um, um, Israel, if you look, if you step back from the, from the moment, events of the day, you, you look back, do you feel like the Israeli government has a strategy vis-a-vis Gaza? What does it want and what is it and how has it been trying to accomplish that? You know, I don't really think, I know this sounds strange, but, you know, there are some very clever people in the Israeli security establishment, but I have to say, I don't really think they do have a strategy. I don't really think that Israel knows where it wants to go with Gaza other than that. I mean, I think Yitzhak Rabin once said that, you know, he wished Gaza would sink into the sea. Now, you know, that obviously isn't going to happen, but I do think there's quite a sense in which Israel would really like not to have to think about Gaza at all. And this feeling that by enclosing it and sort of, you know, you can somehow, and in a way that was part of what disengagement, Ariel Sharon's pulling out of the settlers and troops in 2005 was also about, it's just somehow trying to lock it away. And of course, that's proving extremely difficult. 
I think Hamas also has, you know, a lot of complications in the way it looks at this. Um, And I'm not sure that Hamas has a long-term strategy other than, of course, you know, its stated desire um, in its famous charter to recover historic Palestine for the Muslims and uh, to have it from the river to the sea. But, I mean, so many things have happened since that 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 goal is looking, to put it mildly, extremely unrealistic. And indeed, Hamas has changed a little on on what it would be prepared to accept as a resolution, at least an, a, a long-term interim resolution, if you like, to the conflict. So at the moment, Hamas has to deal with a lot of different constituencies. It has to deal with its own radicals and people, as it were, well to the you know, more hawkish and dangerous than Hamas itself, Salafists um, who are constantly urging uh, greater military resistance to Israel on the one hand. It has to deal with the population of Gaza who both feel worried by loss of life, do not want another war, but do want that blockade lifted. And to some extent, well, to a large extent, actually, in the case of Egypt, it has to deal with Egypt being probably, apart from Qatar at the moment, probably the only other Arab country which it has important relations with. And it doesn't, I think, want to to get offside with Egypt if it can possibly avoid it, because it doesn't actually have too many friends in the region. But what I would say is that I I think there are some tentative signs, and you can never be sure in the Middle East, that Yahya Sinwar, the new-ish head of Gaza, uh, of head of Hamas in Gaza, is looking to kind of consolidate his position as the more cohesive force in Palestinian politics, more cohesive, that is, than its chief rival, Fatah, which is very badly divided itself at the moment. And I think part of that political strategy involves not getting into unnecessary military adventures if it can possibly avoid it. So then why didn't Hamas just swallow this Israeli assault and try to, you know, bury it and not... That's uh, that's a great question. And uh, I've been asking myself exactly the same thing. I think, you know, what they could have done and what they seem to be about to do was say, well, you know, we won a great victory. We exposed this uh, Israeli military operation on our territory and uh, kind of leave it at that. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think it's constantly having to balance its tactical decisions on the basis of what kind of pressures it's on from different constituencies. And I guess, you know, you have Islamic Jihad, you know, in the wings formed because Hamas wasn't militant enough. You have these Salafist guys who are capable of firing rockets on their own. And I think, I guess, and again, Peter, I am just speculating here from this distance, I guess they felt they were under a lot of pressure from that constituency to act. And also, they may also have felt that they needed to, if you like, I mean, it's, I think it, in my own view is it was an error, to put it mildly, on Hamas's part. But nonetheless, they may have felt that uh, they needed to show their own sort of deterrent muscle, if you like, um, to show that they could still fire the rockets. I, it's hard to be absolutely sure, I think, why they did that. Hmm. You mentioned Egypt um, and how Egypt is actually, along with Qatar, maybe Hamas's only... Um, 
good relationship in the middle, you know, for government. I wanted to ask you, but my under, I had been under the impression that since, you know, Hamas comes originally out of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Egyptian government under Sisi overthrew a Muslim Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood leader in Egypt. So I had been under the impression that Egypt was actually very hostile to Hamas and that actually, uh, uh, you know, was kind of saw things in many ways eye to eye with the Israelis in terms of both having, but you maybe that's not quite well, correct. Well, I think, no, no, I think it was correct. Mm. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, President Sisi has no love for Hamas any more than he did for the Muslim Brotherhood. I think a couple of things have 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 begun to change a little uh, on that uh, in recent months. One thing is that um, in May 2017, you know, Hamas produced this new document which talked about um, a Palestinian state on uh, the old pre-1967 borders, but it also disavowed, sorry, it didn't disavow, that's putting it too strongly, but it, it, it went to some steps to disconnect itself from the wider Muslim Brotherhood. And I think that was seen as mm. a kind of olive branch to the Egyptians. But I think the Egyptian strategy here, insofar as one can divine it, is much more self-interested. I think that Egypt is really worried of a major conflict in Gaza washing back into the North Sinai, where it has very serious um problems, uh, as you well know, from kind of, you know, ISIS or Daesh wannabes, if not the real thing. Um, And actually, Hamas has been cooperating with the Egyptians quite strongly in, and they have some of these guys actually in jail in southern Gaza, but they also have been preventing people who are very keen to join Mm their, as it were, Mm -hmm. comrades in the North Sinai from crossing the border. Mm. And I think that's had two consequences. One, I think Egypt really doesn't want a war because they're worried that Hamas will then lose control of that situation. And the other thing is that they're becoming less enamoured of President Mahmoud Abbas's um, views that, you know, he can only, Fatah can only reconcile with Hamas if Hamas disarm and submit their security forces to um, PA control, which has really been the theoretical view of mm-hmm. Egypt and of many other people in the international community for a long time. And I think Egypt is beginning to realize that actually Hamas is a better guarantor of security for it, for Egypt, than, you know, Fatah forces could possibly be. I mean, I think they're very skeptical whether a, 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 a Fatah in control, a con, you know, at least in the short term, mm in control of Gaza would work for them. So, I I mean, I think it's a very, you know, it's like a short-term security interest on Egypt's part. How many times have you been to Gaza? Oh, God. Um, Well, I I haven't sort of absolutely counted them, but I guess 100 times since I first went into 2003. Now, sometimes for very short periods and sometimes for much longer. And I was there for a long time in, uh, in 2016 when I was writing my book. Mm. So, you know, one of the odd things is, you know, about certainly about discourse in the United States, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, is that the vast majority of people who talk about Gaza have never been to Gaza, right? Um, and um, so I'm just curious, what, um, what, what is, what's, it, what's Gaza like? What, what surprised you about, about uh, the conditions there, about the people, about society? 
Well, I'll tell you what surprises a lot of people when you tell them this. Yeah. And, and of course, one important thing, I mean, you talk about the United States, and of course, that's true in Israel to some extent, because um, since, I mean, of course, people have sure. often served in the army, sure. and then, but, but there's been no Israeli news coverage from inside Gaza mm. since 2006, which I happen to think is a sad. I mean, you weren't asking me about Israel. Mm, interesting. Um, Israeli papers can't, can't operate stringers in Gaza. It's just not possible. Well, no, you can you can operate, you know, you can depend on sort of Palestinian journalists yeah. and the wires, yeah, which yeah. are run by some yes. actually, in, you know, very good Palestinian yeah, journalists. Yeah. But it's not the same as yes. when... Television crews went in yes. from Israel yes. and, you know, many print journalists yes. as well. And yes. I think that's a real shame, yes. by the way. No, but... Uh, um, well, what, sorry, who's preventing... Who, well, the Israeli pre- government took a, a basically... Uh, a, I mean, I think the ostensible reason certainly was security, yes. that it was not safe for Israeli yeah. journalists to do I mean, Israeli journalists did not welcome that. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, when I first went to Gaza, there were, you know, there were a lot of Israeli journalists mm. going in and out all the time. Mm. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I just mentioned that because it's a sort of bee yeah. in my bonnet. No, but, that is interesting. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, I think that things that surprise people when you tell them about Gaza is, you know, there's some quite nice hotels. Mm. Uh, weirdly, the hospitality sector, mm. I often think about this because, um, you know, you sort of think how... You know, if you could wage a magic wand, many, many things would change. And one would probably be that Gaza might become a kind of tourist hub. It's got yes. this beautiful coastline. Yes. You know, it's also got, you know, a sea absolutely polluted by raw sewage yes. being pumped into it because of the uh, dire sanitation problems. But if you could clean that up. Um, it's got some good restaurants. Mm. It's, you know, this is a, I mean, Gaza City itself is a city of over 700,000 people. It's Gaza has five universities. Um, it has, in my view, and I talk quite a lot about this in my book, it has a a tremendously sort of entrepreneurial kind of culture in the sense that, and I talk quite a lot about Gaza business, partly because, of course, most of it's been crippled by Mm. that blockade. And it's got, you know, painters and rappers and musicians. And uh, I was pretty amazed in 2016 to find that, Shakespeare, the quatrocentenary of Shakespeare's death was being um, commemorated in a number of ways, actually. Mm. Uh, one very good Gaza playwright and a writer, novelist, really, but um, Atif Abu Saif um, wrote a version of Romeo and Juliet where the Montagues were Fata and the Capulets <laughs> were Hamas, mm. uh, which went down very well. I myself saw a great video at the Nusrat um, refugee camp of King Lear in faultless mm. English, sort of video version compressed down to mm. 31 minutes. And it was great. And I, I mean, I, I I tell people this not because, of course, there's another side to Gaza. Of course, A, you know, there's a lot of poverty. B, there are some crazy guys. C, you know, Hamas is very much, you know, very much in control, internal control of Gaza. And it has at times, I mean, it is not the Taliban and it is not for all uh, Benjamin Netanyahu keeps saying it is ISIS. But, you know, it has been very repressive towards um, some active dissidents in Gaza. It's, you know, extrajudicially executed people. So, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know... um, Paint an incredibly yeah. pretty picture when, but but you know, this is a very vibrant society actually. Mm. Mm. And th- obviously, the 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 term that's used 
so frequently by critics of Israeli policy towards Gaza is that Gaza is an open-air prison. Did, when you're there, do you f- feel like you're in an open-air prison? No, you don't. And actually, one of the things, whenever people ask me about, you know, how often I've been, as you did just now, I always feel slightly guilty because, of course, you know, as a foreign journalist... Yes. I can go in and out yeah. pretty easily. So it doesn't feel like a prison in that sense to me because I'm not an inmate. Right. You know, I'm yes. a prison visitor. Yes. Yes. But um, but but I think for, uh, you know, a very large number of uh, Palestinians in Gaza, it really does. And I think it's worth mentioning, of course, that this is, you know, older Palestinians in Gaza, many, many of whom, by the way, speak Hebrew, you know, used to go out Mm. every day to work in Israel. It was possible up to the early 90s to make family visits in the West Bank and um, Israel. I mean, this is all after the Six-Day War and after the occupation started. You know, a lot of Palestinian students in Gaza studied at universities, not only in the West Bank, but in Israel. Mm. I mean, post-grads and so on. That's you know, that's all over. Yeah. I mean, I looked at um, Gisha, the Israeli Human Rights Agency, produced some figures in September, which were that there were 5,236 exits in September 2018 from Gaza. Now, that you know, initially you think, oh, well, that's quite a lot. Then you think that is a quarter of 1% mm. of Gaza's population. Mm. Um, and... Uh, it's probably, you know, some of those exits were probably by the same people going Mm -hmm. in and out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians in Gaza cannot get out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, I you know, I think for all sorts of reasons that uh, that is bad news. A a businessman friend of mine in Gaza, Jordat al-Hudri, once said to me, you know, people talk about the siege all the time because that is the word, really, for for the blockade. But, you know, there's also the mental siege. Mm. You know, we are enclosed mm. in this place. Mm. People aren't getting out to, you know, study. And, you know, the younger people are not meeting Israelis other than, you know, soldiers or, you know, watching the planes come overhead. And, I mean, I think that's catastrophic. So I don't think it fe- – I mean, of course, if you look physically, yeah. you know, there's a big, ele- you know, electronically monitored fence. Yeah. And uh, Erez, the terminal that goes in from Israel, is a pretty, you know, pretty fortified and formidable building. But no, it doesn't feel like a prison inside, but but it is one in many ways. And what do you have a sense of what impact this separation has had on or is having on on society in Gaza? Well, I think that um, I think that it is. I mean, I think there are sort of two things to say really about that. I mean, I think the first is that it is, uh, you know, as I say, or, you know, not my phrase, but the, the, the mental siege is operating. I mean, I think the fact that it's very difficult to um, to travel and particularly really to travel in, I mean, you know, as they used to both in Israel and the and the West Bank, has a sort of um, insulating effect on people's mentality mm-hmm. to some extent. And um, that probably, in a sort of perverse way, plays into the hands of the most socially conservative forces in Hamas. I mean, Mm. I think Gaza's not become, I think, excessively religious 
in a way that it wasn't before. And it's always been a fairly socially conservative society. But and 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 not everybody is socially conservative in Gaza. I think it's important to say that. But it probably has become more so. And I think this isolation is one part of it. However, the thing against all that is the um, you know the pervasive. Uh, presence of the internet and social media, mm. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm. which considering that Gaza is still on 2G, by yeah, the way, yeah, yeah. Uh, unlike the West Bank, which has at least gone to 3G, is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is an enormous amount of social media activity. And also, you know, I went to a great company uh, when I was writing my book called Work Without Borders, and here you've got, I mean, this is a little picture, actually, of uh, which I hope helps to answer your question. This is a pretty classy IT company with some of the brightest graduates, not all of them, by the way, in IT, some from other disciplines, about 100 of them, a bit more than 100, working on a whole lot of pretty, you know, interesting stuff. They're writing software. I mean, I'm no geek myself, but they're writing software for you know, Saudi Arabian real estate companies mm. and, you know, things like this. And they're doing pretty good work. And it's and, – and by the way, some women are, you know, leading teams mm. there. It's, it's, you know, I would say pretty much equal men and women, which is also impressive. And, the, you know, in a sense, they would say they're beating the blockade. It's kind of like a cyber operation mm-hmm. that beats mm-hmm. the blockade but you know at the end of it the guy who runs it a guy called uh, mr sharafa said to me you know it's weird because actually we have very low turnover here and we keep our people because these are the kind of people that in anywhere else than gaza mm. they'd be poached by some international company and they'd mm. go elsewhere right. and uh, actually we can keep them which is a sort of weird kind of perverse effect of the mm. blockade but so I, you know, I don't want to suggest that these are all people who have no consciousness of what's going on in the outside world at all. I mean, thanks to the internet, you mm. know, it is uh, it, it, there is a lot of access to information at least. Mm. But, you know, Alexa, the Hamas uh, TV station is easy to watch. So, you know, a lot of people do that. Um, I don't think it has the openness to outside influences than perhaps it did. And, of course, it's the younger people who are connected rather than older people uh, connected to the Internet. In right. Way. What is your sense of what it's like to be LGBT or to be Christian in Gaza? Listen, uh, well, it, it, I think those are two separate yeah, questions, yeah. actually. I think LGBT, you know, not great. I mean, so, I, I know. I'm, I'm not, it's I'm, totally, totally, well, co- I'm totally not, hidden. You know, I'm not going to name him, but a guy said to me who I regard as absolutely not Hamas, not, you know, not connected to any of the factions, yeah. very independent, middle class, well-educated, has traveled. He said to me, there are no gay people in mm. Gaza. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, that is ridiculous. Yeah, you know, yeah. There are two million yeah, people yeah, in yeah. Gaza. It's not, yeah. I mean, I'm not aware. I mean, I just think people, I mean, I just don't think people come out in Gaza. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that's the truth yeah. of the matter. Yeah. Um, Christian is... And, def- and in, in, if oh, you yeah. were found, if, if you, I mean, try, if you are found to... If you are found to be engaging, well, is, yes. what, 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 you know... Well, the only case that I... And, and uh, you know, this is just, yeah. you know, the fact that I haven't heard of more yeah, yeah. is just me not yeah, having heard yes, of more. Yeah. I'm not saying it never happened. But the one very high-profile uh, case of this um, was um, 
a Hamas commander in the Zaytun district of Gaza City who was executed by mm. Hamas. Now, it was thought that this guy had... This was a um, couple of years ago. It was thought that this guy had tipped off the Israelis about the existence, about the location of Mohammed Daif, who uh, was a big Hamas military figure, uh, in the, during the 2014 war when his house was bombed. Uh, but then it turned out that that charge didn't appear to stick. Mm. And one of the charges mm. against him mm. was precisely that, mm. that he mm. had indulged in, you know, as I'm sorry, I'm, this is in quotes, yes, kind yes, of homosexual yes, practices. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I remember having a conversation with Mahmoud Zahar, who is mm. a pretty short, hawkish uh, Hamas political figure, um, about this. And, I mean, I said, but, you know, is that enough to, you know, for him to be executed? I mean, there were, it yeah. was more complicated, yeah. that story, but he seemed to think it was enough. Mm, mm. So that gives you a little flavour, but, I mean, it's only one, I mean, it's, I'm afraid, really the only anecdote yeah. in this area that yeah. I have. Christians is different. Uh, there's a very, very small Christian community in Gaza, tiny, and tinier than it used to be. It's the majority. I mean, we're now talking maybe 3,000 people mm. at most. Um, the majority are Greek Orthodox, but there is also a Latin, in other words, Roman Catholic church. Um, and I know the prelates in both. The Roman Catholic one is um, actually a Brazilian. Um, now, I would say that the Christian community have been pretty well... Um, protected and either left alone to occasionally being protected by the Hamas authorities. Mm. They have not, I mean, I, I, I hope, I mean, I, I know some Christian people in Gaza and I've talked to them about this. I mean, there was an incident after the famous, you might remember the Danish newspaper that published the satirical cartoons yes. of Mohammed. Yes. There was quite a reaction inside Gaza. Yeah. They, the, the Latin church got some very... And by the way, there are expat nuns working that church. Um, got some very threatening faxes, and mm. Hamas kind of moved in mm. to keep them mm. intact. Now, you know, this is—I mean, there's probably all sorts of tactical reasons for that, but you know, it is one of the ways mm. in which it's—it's—it is, a, I think, unhelpful oversimplification to compare ISIS with Hamas or mm. to regard them as identical. I mean, they are, you know, I'm not an apologist for Hamas, and in my book there are many, many criticisms mm. of it, um, uh, not, and not just for suicide bombing in the Second Intifada. But, you know, we, we don't add to the understanding of this yeah. problem if we yeah. think Hamas is just like ISIS. And, and the, the preservation of the Christian community is, I think, a, you know, a small example of that. So one question that people wonder about is how people in Gaza feel about Hamas. And, and beyond that, there's also often this kind of, you sometimes hear from supporters of the Israeli government where people will say, you know, when are the people of Gaza going to rise up against Hamas, you know, who are their oppressors and create a government that is whatever's not as a, that is not as illiberal and that may, may you know, be more open to a peace with Israel. Blah, blah. Talk to, to me, what's your sense of the relationship between the state and society in Gaza? Well, I think that... Um Hamas is certainly less popular than it was when it won the election. I mean, that's putting it at its most minimal. Yeah. I think its popularity goes up and down for all sorts of reasons. I'm always slightly surprised, actually, as a kind of foreigner, how far, you know, even in the sort of extraordinary circumstances that they're in, 
a lot of Palestinians in Gaza do see Hamas as their, you know, government, mm. and they complain a lot about the mm. government. Um, and um, I think that uh, there's quite a lot of um, conversational criticism, which Hamas doesn't really suppress. I mean, in that sense, it's not a police state, but obviously people who've, you know, some journalists who've gone, you know, further than that have run into trouble with the authorities. But I would say... I mean, it's very hard to estimate its popularity. I think Khalil Shikaki's polling, um, well, it doesn't actually give a, the most recent polling doesn't give a figure actually for people who think Hamas is doing a good job, but it does look at various election scenarios in which Hamas would be participating, and it's pretty evenly divided against other people. And occasionally, Palestinians joke that if there was an election... In Gaza, they'd vote for Fatah, and in mm. the West Bank, they'd vote mm. for Hamas mm. just because they want to get rid of the people running them. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it goes up and down in popularity, but, but you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to exaggerate it, I think. And I think right now it's worried about that because, you know, they're, they're, you know people are feeling, you know, they do sometimes blame Hamas for mm. the fact that they're in this situation. However, and this is where I think there's been a serious error in... Israeli policy, Egyptian policy, and actually in the policy now being apparently conducted by the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, which is this fantasy that people are going to rise up and revolt against Hamas, that they're somehow going to bring the authority down. I mean, you know, Hamas does have, you know, Hamas has got the guns, it's got the police. Uh, you know, I'm always, I mean, law and order, actually, in Gaza, which was very, very volatile in the period before when Fatah were fighting it out with Hamas and even a bit before that, um, you know, is now strong. You mm. can walk around. I mean, I walk at the streets at night mm -hmm. without, you mm. know, this is, you know, so the idea that you could somehow rise, I mean, how are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they've. I just, I've always thought that was a fantasy. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't matter. If Hamas goes down to its sort of bedrock of maybe 15 to 20 percent mm -hmm. die-hard mm -hmm. supporters, it's still impossible to do that. Mm. And I don't think it's quite that low yet. And so the argument, obviously, the one hears from the Israeli government um, is something along the lines of, look, if we lifted this blockade on Gaza um, – then Hamas would take the money, the materials to massively build up their arsenal, strengthen themselves and make Israel in greater danger, you know, um, than it is now. So well, so I wonder what, 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 how, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, I mean, obviously it's a, at the moment uh, a counterfactual. Um, I think a couple of things about that. First of all, there isn't much evidence that um, material going in, for example, for UN projects, which has been allowed in, has actually been taken by Hamas for its own purposes. I think, you know, there are a series of um, stipulations by Hamas on things like cement and particularly wood, funnily enough, at the moment, because they believe that Hamas is going to fortify its tunnels with that material. And that you know, there, there may be, I mean, for, for commercially entered stuff, there may be some some truth in that. I, I find that very, I'm just not expert enough as a security person to, to know that. But I mean, I, I, I first of all, as I say, I think materials that have gone in for UN-approved projects have not leaked to Hamas. So, I mean, I think that's an important thing. I think 
the, uh, but I think the sort of bigger picture in all that, if we just go back a bit to 2005, where James Wolfenson was the first quartet envoy, come from the World Bank. He was appointed by George W. Bush to that job and actually is one of the kind of few foreign heroes in my story because, you know, I think Wolfenson really wanted to make a go of the Palestinian economy after the settlers left in 2005. And I think the view that Wolfenson took was, and this is a, a, a sort of big picture answer to your question, is what is in the long-term security interests of Gaza? Okay, some some export might get out and it might contain, a, you know, some ammunition for somebody in the West Bank. Although, actually, Israel's capacity to security screen goods going out. I mentioned goods going out rather than goods coming in because exports was so vital to mm-hmm. Gaza's economy. Mm-hmm. So what exports to Israel in particular. Exports as well. to Israel. Well Israel and the and West, West Bank, Bank but yes. a lot Israel. A yes. lot of clothing yes. uh manufacturers yeah. were sending their clothes yeah. to Tel Aviv for the fashion market right through the yeah. second intifada. Yeah. 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 Um and what's what's the risk of that compared to the long term prospect? of, you know, an economy being cranked up again in Gaza, young men having other jobs than working for Hamas, mm-hmm. either its civilian payroll or its military wing. I mean, we're talking about, it, according to the World Bank, 70% unemployment rate among under 25s now. And, and you know, making people feel that they've got, a you know, a chance of looking after their families and stuff. Isn't that really the long-term security interest for uh, for Israel? And I think that was that was Wolfenson's view. And I think he became very, very frustrated when he didn't feel that, as he would have seen it, Israel really got that. And in particular, he persuaded Condoleezza Rice to um, negotiate the famous Access and Movement Agreement in November two thousand and five, which would have allowed. That exports due to go out, there was going to be free passage, actually, or, 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 you know, good passage between Gaza and the West Bank for Palestinians. And really, the AMA was never implemented. And uh, uh, I mean, I think, you know, this is what I, I mean, you know, I I sort of, I'm a Wolfensonian on Mm, this mm, issue. mm, mm. Um, The other criticism one hears of Hamas often is that, um, you know, Hamas, Essentially, purposefully tries to, you know, embeds itself within the Palestinian the population Palestinian population in Gaza with an eye towards essentially creating civilian casualties or or being you know wanting to civilian casualties to make Israel look bad rather than trying to actually protect the civilian population. Yes, I mean, I I think I mean first of all, one has to remember that you know, and I know this is a cheap point, yeah, but yeah. you know, there are a number of important installations in, say, Tel Aviv, like the right. Ministry of Defense, yes. which are also yes. in, yes. Uh, in, in areas. urban areas. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, there's no doubt that Hamas operates in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, urban environments. Um, and it, I have heard stories of um, <coughs> them. I mean, funnily enough, I, uh, there's a British woman I know who's married to a Palestinian who told me how, uh, he's lived in Gaza since the early 80s, how the uh, Hamas occupied a an apartment in their buildings and actually the res- during the 2014 mm. war and the residents protested and the guys went mm. in the end. Mm. But, I've, yeah, they do that. Of course, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not, 
you know, <laughs> I don't believe in war, so yeah. I'm, I'm not going to defend that. However, I do not think that, having said all of that, and, and given that Hamas do almost certainly operate in urban areas and may not be too fussy about whether civilians are killed. I mean, I agree with that. I don't think that can, you know, be the full explanation or justification for the very, very heavy civilian Palestinian casualties, both in 2008 9 and in the Operation Protective Edge in 2014. I mean, I think, if you like, if Hamas have been careless of civilian life, which they are probably in Gaza, and of course, it's perfectly true that they're rockets are aimed at civilian communities in Israel, um, then I think you can argue that is, Israel's forces are, or, or the, the terms under which the political echelon requires Israel's military to operate, are even more careless of civilian life, mm. or Palestinian civilian life. And I talk about that in my book. Another argument that one hears is that um, you know, Hamas, no matter, even if it's when it makes certain tactical concessions at certain points or says various things, essentially, basically, in the long term, never would will accept true peace alongside any kind of Jewish state. And therefore, for Israel and for Israel to give up control of the West Bank would create the, pos- the, the, the possibility, maybe even probability of Hamas taking over control in the West Bank, and therefore Israel would be facing a much more dire security situation than it, than it faces today. These are people who, who kind of proponents of the status quo kind of say these things. So I'm just interested in how you... Well, I think one, and as I say, I, I'm, I'm not an apologist yeah. for Hamas, but, uh, you know, I, I just want to come back on some yes, of these yes, particular yes. points. I mean, one thing Hamas doesn't do on the whole is sort of say it's going to do something and yeah. then not do it or mm. vice versa. In other words, it's relatively disciplined mm-hmm. about sort of mm-hmm. sticking to positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had a long conversation with somebody in Hamas, namely Bassem Naim, in which I, I, I basically put exactly that point to mm-hmm. him recently, this last October. His argument was, look, um, you know, for years, up until 2011, Syria and Israel mm. um, had a kind of cold peace, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. I mean, really, since uh, since the Six-Day War, mm-hmm. uh, there's been no military aggression yeah. between them, and Syria has not recognized Israel. Right. And so he, he was using that as mm. a kind of parallel. Yeah. Now, I, I think that I'm not alone in thinking that for all its many, many flaws... The document that Hamas produced in Doha in, I think, May 2017 um, did represent a bit of an advance by saying it's West Bank. And I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone in that because I read an interview with Georgia Island, who'd been on mm. the National Security Council, who said much the same thing, mm. that it, it was definitely an advance in their position. In other words, it's, mm. you, what you can't get Hamas to do, of course, is call it a two-state solution, mm-hmm. because that would involve sublim- I mean, it's crazy, mm-hmm. this, in my view, mm. absolutely crazy, and actually an unnecessary obstacle, mm. but it would involve them in recognizing Israel. But, you know, they are talking about a Palestinian state on 67 borders, and that is an advance of their previous position. I think it would have been much better, by the way, if they had actually sort of physically torn up the 1980s charter, which talks about uh, 
Palestine from the river to the sea, mm. but they didn't. And, you know, one has to regard this as a sort of incremental step. So, you know, I, I do think it's possible that even if Hamas won control mm. of a, you know, putative Palestinian state, not that it looks mm. we're very near that, uh, on 22% of historic Palestine, and a long-term truce was struck, well, I think that truce would probably be adhered to. Mm. I mean, and we are in the realms of sort of, you know, real kind of um, future projection here, and you know, it may be wishful thinking. But that's I don't I don't think that's inconceivable. Mm. In other words, I I I think it is perfectly. But I mean, in a sense, a lot of the time, that's what Hamas is doing in Gaza. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the fact mm. is, mm -hmm. and and indeed. You know the 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 crazy guys that I've been talking about complain that mm. Hamas Hamas in a way is is Israel's security contractor in right. Gaza. Right. I mean, of course, it's not right now. This seems a funny time yes. to say that. Yes. But a lot of the time, that's what's yeah. happening. You know, they yeah. are keeping the lead. I mean, I've yeah. talked to Israeli military people who've said, you know, yeah, we can watch the the. You know, Kassam Brigade's guys on motorbikes mm. going down the border mm. and stopping yeah. people firing rockets. So, yeah. you know, I don't think I, 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 my, my own view is that that is not a sufficient objection to doing the things that are needed to do to, uh, you know, end the occupation and start to start to work towards a solution to the conflict. And how much communication is there between the Israeli government? And Hamas, or for that matter, the United States government and Hamas. Do you have a sense of this? Do they actually do they talk to one another directly? Do they talk to indirectly? I mean, intelligence agencies talk to one another. Well, I yes, I mean, I I think probably um, I, I can't really speak for the Americans. I know that during and probably since the BBC correspondent Alan Johnston was kidnapped, not mm. actually by Hamas, but by a kind of half half-fundamentalist, half-criminal gang um, called Jesh al-Islam uh, back in 2007. Um, I think that uh, in British intelligence certainly had, you know, contacts with Hamas. I mean, quite how extensive they were. They, they were certainly extensive during the time mm -hmm. that he was incarcerated, and I suspect some of those lines kept open mm -hmm. after that. Uh, on Israel, well, I mean, I think, uh, I, I suspect, you know, those people who are still alive in 50 years' time mm. will, you know, go to the Israel National Archive and mm. find that there were all sorts of direct contacts between Israel mm. and Hamas. At the moment, uh, as you know, it is really done through Egypt. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, so I think there are contacts, but I just... I would just like to add one thing to that, which is that I think the decision taken by the international community and, of course, very much led by the United States mm. in 2006 after the elections, um, you know, which which basically was to boycott Hamas unless they signed up to conditions which I think they knew Hamas would not sign yeah. up to. I mean, in my view, there were alternative conditions yeah. they could have imposed. That boycott, which still exists today, even though some people, I mean, Tony Blair says in my book, you know, maybe that was, we handled that wrong yeah. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's been a terrible mistake. So even if you have these intelligence yeah. contacts, and I'm sure over prisoner releases and stuff, they have existed, um, I think there's no substitute for actually a much more open engagement. Yeah. And I think then Western countries would have had a leverage over Hamas, which they've not, you know, they've not had for yeah. 11 years. Yeah. Sorry, long answer. Um, 
One last question, not exactly yes. on Gaza, but but just something that, that people here, I think, certainly in the Jewish community, tend to talk about. But I'm interested in your opinion on being a Brit. Is um, is the question of how to understand Jeremy Corbyn, um, and um, the the sense of anxiety that appears to exist among some, maybe many British Jews about the direction the Labour Party has gone. You know, it's, I have to say, I myself am often torn because I, I, in the United States, I am highly aware of the degree to which here I feel like the organized American Jewish community can unfairly tar people with anti-Semitism for political reasons because they want to shut down criticism of Israel. Um, on the other hand, um, it, when when one sees the sense that a lot of a lot of British Jews do seem to be quite anxious about the Labour Party's direction. Um, my inclination is to think that they're not; they wouldn't be anxious for nothing. So um, I'm just wondering how what how you make sense of this. Okay, so I, you know, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is personally anti-Semitic. I mean, he's worked with Jews in his Islington constituency for a long time. I, I don't actually. I think he's genuinely anti-racist in every possible sense. Secondly, I think that. Um, you know, there were elements in the British Board of Deputies, the main sort of kind of the most official Jewish organization elements, not not all of them um, at all, who argued um, that, as you know, this dispute arose over the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and how how wholeheartedly Labour were prepared mm-hmm. to embrace it to cut a very long story short. Um, and, you know, Jeremy Corbyn got some Jewish defenders on over this issue, um, uh, including Stephen Sedley, a very distinguished uh, Court of Appeal judge who, who you know, argued that the IHRA, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism was too inclusive of criticisms of Israel as a, as a, as a, form of anti-Semitism sort of thing. So all of that. However, I do think that, um, you know, one of the effects of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party has been to assemble this, you know, it took everybody by surprise, a kind of really big coalition of supporters, people Mm. joining Labour Party in kind of unheard of numbers and so on. Now, I think some of those supporters, a minority, but occasionally a pretty kind of ugly and vociferous minority, but very small probably, have said and done some things which are very difficult to construe as other than anti-Semitic, frankly, and which I think Corbyn didn't handle as well as he could and should have done at the beginning of last summer when this whole dispute broke out. And uh, therefore, I think it has caused, you know, I mean, I think you're right. I think some of that uneasiness is genuine. I think it was exaggerated as a problem. I think it was sort of politicized as mm. a problem. Mm. And, you know, Corbyn has many people, he's unpopular with many people, including many people in the Labour Party who are not Jewish. So, right. I mean, there was a, um, but, but having said that, I think he, my own personal view, and you know, some other people on the left don't agree with me mm. about this. And, um, and and by the way, I largely agree with what I understand to be Corbyn's position on the Israel-Palestinian mm-hmm. conflict, namely that the 1967 occupation should end. Um, 
but I, 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 you know, I think there was some, some pretty. There was some, for example, there was trolling of a Labour MP <coughs> in Liverpool called Luciana Berger, which was very, very ugly and very unpleasant. And I think he should have more vigorously, and I think the National Executive of the Labour Party more vigorously should have stamped on that. Mm. And I think it would have been easier to defend his uh, position because, you know, actually. It makes it that much more difficult to criticise Israel if, right. if 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 there's a confusion between right. the anti-Semitism and the criticism right. of Israel. Right. Donald McIntyre, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Great. Well, thank you very much. I did too. Thanks. <laughs>